this episode of Dublin's Historic South, where I, Laura Fitzsackery, will be joined by guest hosts in discovering the townlands of South Dublin and delving into their history by looking at why we refer to Dundrum as Dundrum, what life was like in 13th century Dunnybrook, and how Talla now has roughly the same amount of people in it as the population of Andorra. As we go through the south side, I will shed light on place names, social history and the area as it is today, with this month's episode focusing on the area of Lucan. I am delighted to be joined this month by a dear friend of mine, Camilla Peterson. Hi, Cam. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Camilla <laughs> hails from Denmark, but currently resides in Maynooth. Her focus of study is on Viking period mythology and narrative tradition. An alumna of Maynooth University, her main research focus is on early Irish narrative and literary tradition in comparison to Old Norse narrative tradition and literary tropes of the supernatural, with special focus on shapeshifting. Her other areas of focus are Old Irish linguistics and prehistoric and early medieval archaeology, and she has been published on her topics, most recently in 2019 with Amsterdam University Press. That's a lot. And that's not even half your CV. I I know, I've been busy. (laughs) You most certainly have, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Cam, as we head out west, almost towards Kildare in a way, Mm -hmm. of South Dublin this month, we head to the town of Lucan. The origin of this place name can mean the place of the elms. And according to historian Mary Jackson, the town is also known as the village by locals. It lies on the river Graffine, a tributary of the Liffey, which flows through Lucan House, which we will mention later, and into the river Liffey to the west of Lucan Bridge. Jackson notes the bridge was built in 1816 and it is reputed to have the widest single span in Ireland. But there is another interesting bridge, which we will also mention later. The Place Names Database of Ireland confirms, though, that Laucon is the town's validated name in the Irish language, and its digitised records show that the 1837 Am or Orden Survey Parish Name Book, translates this as land abounding in marshmallows. It is also referred to as such on loganum.ie, where it also notes the medicinal properties of marshmallow. The archival records date the first reference to Lucan back to the 13th century, quoting Gilbert's register of the Archbishops of Dublin, Credith Mihi, in 1897 as its source. So whether it is elms or marshmallow, Jackson goes on to suggest that the natural beauty of the area, widely acknowledged by many writers, influenced how Lucan was named and why it has long been such a pleasant place for locals and visitors alike. In the Weekly Irish Times, an issue from April 14th, 1900, covered an afternoon drive to Lucan, featured in Queen Victoria's programme when she visited Ireland that year. It caused the liveliest feelings of delight in the village, where the locals cheered and waved flags. End quote. The journalist covering the story wrote that the scenery of the far-famed valley of the Liffey is too well known to need description and that the cordial enthusiasm of the people gratified the royal visitor. Interestingly, it's actually NUI Maynooth Library, so your 
alma mater. Indeed. They're a great resource and an absolute pleasure to work with. I can only agree on that. <laughs> I add. Uh, speaking of writers, though, visiting Lucan, in 1907, D.A. Chart described the Demean Walk from Lucan to the town of Leakslip as the most delightful, certainly the most tranquil and soothing piece of woodland scenery in County Dublin. Studded with its old castles and ruined churches, such that the river was like a miniature Rhine. Wow. Jackson also uncovered that according to Thom's 1911 Post Office Dublin Directory, the town was partly the property of the Colthurst VC and the Shackleton families. The latter having purchased the Petty Cannon lands from the representatives of the late James Gandon. Lots of big names there, Gandon, (laughs) Shackleton, but it'll actually be the VC family that we will be focusing on later in the show. Now, I would say VC, because that's how you would say one of the names that we're going to talk about later, Agmondisham VC. Yeah. Not Vessie. Or Visay. Visay. <laughs> I've also heard. So we're gonna we're gonna yeah. say VC. Yeah. Brilliant. Let's stick with that one. Because that's where the name comes from. Yeah. <laughs> so before we talk about the marshmallow and Lucan, Cam, yes. as our resident Viking, its neighbouring leekslip certainly wasn't named after a plant. No, it definitely wasn't. Uh, the place named Leekslip, as we know it today, really has no meaning in English. It's not really a word. It is an anglicization of a Norse place named Luxlapa, literally meaning the salmon leap or the leap of the salmon, where lax meaning salmon and lapa meaning a leap or a jump. Now, this is almost the most inland Viking place named the other ones all primarily coastal or very Mm -hmm. close to the coast. But it seems there was some kind of Viking settlement on the confluence of the River Liffey and the River Rye. And we know that in 917, the Battle of Confi between the Vikings of Dublin, led by King Sitrige, who also recaptured Dublin with Ragnar in 917 after the whole expulsion, and then against the King of Leinster, we know that that took place in the Confi area of Leakslip. Now, it is interesting as well that the Vikings chose that side of the River Liffey, not the other one. They could have easily stayed on the other side and actually gone into Lucan, but they didn't. They decided to go with the other side. That's really interesting. So we might not be having the place name debate at all about Lucan. Maybe not. That could have been Laxlapa or Leakslip. It could have been. They're so close together that there is really only the river dividing the two areas. So That's it could easily have been opposite. Either or. Yeah. That's fascinating. So I suppose speaking of place names then, we mentioned Marshmallow or Laucon. I'm of course referring to the plant, not the sweets, though we've had a lot of donuts today. So it's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, that's true. It is yeah. actually considered a rare plant. It blooms from August to September. But unlike copious amounts of marshmallows, this plant may have been good for you. Yeah. Cheesy, I know. <laughs> I had mentioned that there are hints of it being a medicinal plant or having healing properties. And there is a fantastic resource that is available at duokus.ie. It holds a digitised version of the school's collection, which is a collection of school children's accounts and retellings of folklore or oral history in the area that, that they're from, which of course also includes the uses of local plants. 
something we can say that today has been lost a little bit. Yeah, I'd say so. It was compiled between 1937 and 1938 from school children across the country. To read you out a few, in Donegal, it was noted that peppermint is good for a cold. As it still is today. Yeah. And nettle tea could be used to cure measles. Mm. As it's not today. Thank God. (laughs) Whilst marshmallow is good for a poultice, which is, of course, used to reduce inflammation. You wouldn't think that when you're eating them. Now, it's the plant coming again. Sorry, sorry. Now, this is, an in- this is interesting because in Kildare, a young boy recalls how marshmallow is used to cure a sprain. He states the way it is used is to scald the herb with boiling water and stoop the sprain with it. And then in Lucan, County Dublin, a young fellow, Frank Stapleton, age 14, states... There is an old cure for sprains that used to be used by people many years ago. There is a certain weed called marshmallow or beggar man's cakes that grows in wild places. This weed was used as a cure for sprains. When somebody sprains an arm or leg, the children of the house, if any, are sent out to gather this weed. When the weed is got, it is put in a small pot and water is poured over it. Then it is let boil for two hours. At the end of that time, it is let cool and the juice is put in a bowl and the woman of the house gets a piece of white cloth and dips it into the bowl and then puts the cloth on the sprain and keeps on doing for some time until it is cured. So, like a poultice. So known in three different parts of Ireland then as reducing inflammation. Wow. Now, lore and oral history, I know, is Right up your street, Cam. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And in Denmark, we have so much folk tradition. We really do. And of course, you do that here in Ireland as well. Now, as in Ireland, we also have, you know, the little fairy people who live underneath the hills. Now, funny enough, we can see with the local folklore that most of the areas that are seen as fairy hills in Denmark are actually old Viking burial mounds. And there's a lot of local stories and they kind of differ a little bit. But we also have a long tradition of plants and herbs and flowers that are used for different things. Now, my specialty is, of course, the supernatural. And many of the medical plants are also used to ward off or protect against the supernatural. Primarily the evil part of the supernatural. And I will talk a little bit about that now. So in Denmark, for healing wounds and making bones grow back together, plantago was used, which is also known as flea word. Or you could use swallow word, which was used to cure warts, if you have any of those. And now that is, of course, most powerful if it is collected at a graveyard under a fading moonlight. Of course. Of course. We all know this. Now, we also have quite a few herbs and plants that are associated with invisibility. So that means you can either make yourself invisible, like chicory, if you carry it in your left breast pocket, or elder that has grown on a willow tree, and rowan as well. Or you can be able to see that which is invisible. Uh, so here we, of course, being the people from the other world. Mm-hmm. So fairies, the likes of that. So what you can use here is bark from an oak tree and spores from ferns. However, you need to be quite careful because male fern roots are quite poisonous. So you need to know what you're doing, basically. You can't yeah. just go willy-nilly and pick Any whatever. Fern. No, yeah. that, that's not how it works. You need to know. <laughs> Now, other plants that were used to ward off evil 
especially these kind of creatures from the other world, was Mockwood or Wormwood, Scarlet Pimpernel, the plant, not the guy, and only if thrown on a fire. But also the fungi known as common stinkhorn can ward off evil eyes. Now, the name itself should tell you that. And in Danish, the name is Hexeg, or literally the witch's egg. Mm-hmm. And you also have St. John's Word, which could drive out the devil himself. So that's perhaps the most powerful one. Now, you may notice that the yellow petals on this plant have tiny little holes in them. And it's said that that's because the devil himself tried to destroy the plant. But he didn't really succeed in that. And the plant itself actually releases a red juice. Now, this is said to be colored by the blood of St. John himself. And it's also believed that if you dip your arrows into the juice, they'll never miss their target. Don't know what the connection is there, but there is one. (laughs) Now, perhaps the most well-known plant to ward of evil is vervain. Now, on the continent, we primarily call it iron herb. And if you're a little bit familiar with folklore and stories, you will, of course, know that iron is also used to ward off ghosts and other kind of spirits like that. So if you have a ghost in your house, have iron around, that will actually repel it. Now, vervain could also be used to cure headaches, muscle cramps, stimulate lactation in new mothers. But if you ingest it while you're pregnant, it can cause a miscarriage. So again, know what you're doing. But also, if you rub it all over you, no one can resist your love. Oh my God, that's amazing. I know. <laughs> now, in early Christian culture, it was believed that vervain was used to stop the flow of blood from Jesus's wounds as he's hanging on the cross. And this is probably why it's seen as working against evil spirits, because it has that very religious connotation. Now, some of the things that it will definitely ward off is stregeria, which is witchcraft, kind of Southern European idea of witchcraft, and even demonic and vampiric creatures. Now, we will, of course, see it in more modern cultures still that you'll hear the term vervain used when you want to repel a vampire and stuff like that. It's still very much in use. So it's an idea that we still have. Now, of course, a lot of these plants and things like that also appear in the Norse mythology. They're bound to because the gods themselves had such a strong connection to nature. And we see that with elderberries and elderflowers and mistletoe, they play quite a big part in Norse mythology because it's seen that the goddess Freya, the goddess of love, actually lives in the elder bushes. And it's also known that the favorite son of Odin, Balda, was killed by an arrow made of mistletoe. Now, Balda's mother, Freak, had gone around the entire world and asked every single plant to not harm her son. But there is one thing that she had overlooked, and it was the mistletoe growing in another tree. So, of course, a certain Loki took advantage of this, decided to make an arrow out of mistletoe, and had a blind man shoot the arrow at Balder as he's there bragging about how he is untouchable. And, of course, Balder dies. Now, elderberries and flowers also used to cool a fever. We still use them today, even in modern medicine. And the berry is also very, very good for your immune system. But you need to boil them first, otherwise they can be poisonous. Mm-hmm. Now, oddly enough, one of the most kind of prevailing folk beliefs we have in Denmark is that of the witch's ring or fairy rings. Now, these are almost 
perfect circle, some fungi, some of the largest rings are up to over 10 meters in diameter. And these are believed to be places where witches and fairies and elves and other creatures like that would gather and dance at night or where the devil churned butter. Depends on where you're from. It was believed that these rings had special powers and they were sought out for different healing and supernatural purposes, especially around midnight and certain times of the year. And of course, the circle itself is quite a prominent symbol, both in in Irish and Scandinavian mythology, narrative tradition, and also in prehistoric and medieval art. We see it basically everywhere. Oh, we have plenty of fairy rings in Ireland as well. Oh, you do. (laughs) But actually, I'll be picking up on prehistoric art just after the break. Celebrating 25 years of community radio for South Dublin, this is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. I'm still here, Laura, and so is lovely Camilla. I am indeed. Thank you. So just before the break, Camilla gave a fantastic rant rendition of Viking of Danish folk, folklore and Viking folklore of course within that and just before we were talking about circles and how they pop up a lot mm-hmm. particularly in medieval but also in prehistoric art yeah. and speaking of the prehistoric there were a few objects found in Lucan or were there so Rachel Flynn from the National Museum of Ireland wrote a great article entitled could two 2,500-year-old Egyptian alabastra have been found in an Iron Age ring fort. Hmm. She noted the numerous antiquarian catalogues that contribute to more than 150 years of object registration. One of those catalogues, first compiled by William F. Wakeman in 1867, registered the display collection of the late George Pitre, artist and antiquarian, who we know is often referred to as the father Father of archaeology. (laughs) I think we all learned that in college. (laughs) She states that while scanning the pages, a curious pair of entries kept jumping out. 1310A, portion of a stone bottle found in the Rath at Lucan. And 1310B, a perfect stone bottle from same place. So there they are, lying side by side in a drawer, these two apparent stone bottles. And she states that there were no bigger than a 500ml bottle of water you might pick up in a newsagent. And certainly not the type we would ever expect to find in a ring fort at Lucan or elsewhere in an Irish context. The most likely place to find an equivalent to these elongated round bottom vessels would be Egypt, Greece or the Middle East where similar carved stone vessels, known as alabastra, were used to hold perfumed or therapeutic oils. Dating as far back as the Egyptian New Kingdom, so 16th to the 11th century BC, their name is derived from the word alabaster, the original material of manufacture. Flynn then goes on to ask, could we have an Egyptian alabastra in an Irish context? The vessels at the museum, this is the National Museum of Ireland Archaeology, had fine-grained greyish walls and this suggests gypsum according to the museum geologist Matthew Parks, of which gypsum, alabaster, is a form. There was also evidence of rotary carving seen on the interior base surface of the broken specimen, suggesting it was hollowed out in the same manner as an alabastron would have been. What is even more interesting is that their unlikely find place, which was referred to as a Danish Rath, 
adjoining the village of Lucan. And this was the first ever issue of the Dublin Penny Journal, by the way, in 1832. Is it that old? <laughs> now, Petrie himself was certain of their origin, referring to the Egyptian alabaster bottle found in a wrath at Lucan. This is him writing in 1878. Later, writers were less convinced. So, mm. Flynn notes that in detailing a small motif piece from the same site, Yunan O'Mara referred to them as being possibly Roman, Teutonic or Merovingian objects. So still a bit of an enigma, Cam, I'm afraid. No proper answer for you. Aww. But you can see a selection of carved alabaster vessels on display in the Ancient Egypt Exhibition of the National Museum of Ireland Archaeology on Kildare Street. Well worth a visit. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. That Danish rat, though, <laughs> is now listed in the National Monuments Database as a ring fort with Sutherine in the townland of Lucan and Pettycannon, County Dublin. Now, we know there is no Danish rat, so why call it that then? Well, I would suggest that this kind of place name is calling it a Danish wrath. This is much later in date than the actual use of the site itself. We know now that it is a rainford. And this was most likely applied to the mound in a period that has been called kind of romanticism, something that starts around the early 1800s and actually goes up until at times the late 1950s, because there is now kind of a focus in Ireland on creating a romantic, heroic past with heroic Celts, and I use quotation marks here, Versus the terrifying Viking as one of the examples mm. of this heroic idea. Um, and this is also where we see the stories of heroes really come to the forefront. So Kukulin, you know, these ones really mm. play a huge part, especially in Celtic studies. And one of the main people in this kind of romantic period, especially in the 1900s, is actually Eamon de Valera. Now, this is this is seen quite obvious in his establishment of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies in 1940, which originally and still focuses on both Celtic studies and cosmic physics and theoretical physics. So two very... <laughs> Just going to say, <laughs> very different fields. Yes, very, two very opposite ends of, of the spectrum there. Now, fun fact, actually, with the theoretical physics, the uh, very famous Evan Schrödinger, the one with the cat in the box. Mm -hmm. He was actually director of theoretical physics in the Dublin Institute You're in the early 1940s. Yeah, oh, he was the first one, yeah. So Eamon de Valera actually managed to ring him in and get him over here. So <laughs> there you go, in case you didn't know. I didn't. <laughs> no. But within this kind of romanticizing period, a lot of places often get a second or third name or they're trying to apply a certain event from the heroic stories and more than often than not, these are, you know, literary events. They're not historical events. And they're trying to apply them to the landscape and kind of unfortunately distort them a little bit in that mm. sense. Now, of course, these days, scholars are well aware of this. And we don't really take place names like Danish Wrath too seriously anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I just think of the, the origin of where that comes from yeah. as well. It's just fascinating. Of course, and he is writing in the late, very late 1800s yeah. as well. So right smack bang in the middle of that romanticism or romantic period. But you can even see it in his illustrations. They're very romantic, even when mm -hmm. he draws the ruins and all that. It's very much that ideal of an Ireland that they're trying to create. And I suppose even in Lucan as well, 
there we were talking about fines there as well so in mm-hmm. relation to that danish wrath but there have been a, a number of other fines in the lucan area so like in kuldrina now mm-hmm. i know that that's actually in the electoral division of lucan yeah and of course it's also very close to leekslip yeah well i went and looked at some of the excavation reports and these are all available on excavations.ie so they're all online so if you have an interest there is a lot to go in and look at and you can just search any way you kind of want to but for Kuldrina in 95, 97, 2005 and 2006 there was a lot of excavations that took place on a small mound in that particular townland and this is where the Ribelifi really takes a sharp bend southwards Mm -hmm. so if you look at a map that's where you can see it now, in 1995, the excavations revealed that the mount itself was an 18th or 19th century landscape folly. Now, this was very typical, especially during the famine period. But beneath the mound itself, they found subsoil cut features that date back to the late 7th to the early 13th centuries. They also found a large assemblage of Mesolithic worked flints, a spiral ringed pin, a pseudo penannular ring brooch, and medieval and post-medieval debris showing that the site had been in use for a very long period. Mm. And then two years later, in 97, they found pottery shards of medieval date and two medieval bronze stick pins were also found. But then also further monitoring of the groundworks produced an assemblage of uh, lithic material and medieval pottery, but no traces of human activity were really noted at this point. Now... In 2005, the geophysical surveys on site then identified quite a number of areas that had archaeological potential, and this then led to different excavations. And in 2005, they managed to find quite a number of flints from the Mesolithic date. But it's not until 2006 we really see kind of a proper development of what this site was proper used for. So in 2006, they actually discovered a passage tomb to the west of the site, Now, at this point, this has been reduced to basically ground level and only really the western side of the tomb survived to any kind of great depths. And immediately to the east of that tomb was a circular curb of large stones with a small kern and two kiss burials, which are typical of the early Bronze Age period. Now, kiss burials are not something we come across that much in our daily language. So kiss burials are made of four stone slabs placed in a hole like walls and then covered with another stone called a capstone. And they're usually quite small. We're talking about one by one and a half meters and about half a meter deep. So they're quite small. Now, these are basically, I guess we could say, precursors to the coffins we have today. Now, these kists were rectangular and they were placed in the southwest area of the curved circle. Now, both had an orientation of east-west and the first kist had been disturbed quite recently. They actually found a beer can inside the top (gasps) layer. No. Yes. Typical. Yeah. What can we do? (laughs) Now, inside, underneath the beer can... (laughs) Sorry. So ridiculous. I know. (laughs) The things things you find as an archaeologist, you wouldn't believe. Oh, I can only imagine. (laughs) Now, the skeleton in the first kist with the beer can consisted of a cranial fragment a few pieces of vertebrae, and then two crushed pelvic fragments, femurs, tibias, a fibula, a heel bone, and a talus. So most of the lower limb bones were articulated, but there's no ribs or upper limb bones there. 
Now, the skeleton was in a flexed position, facing south, with the head towards the east. The, and we can see that the unfused long bones indicated that the individual was actually juvenile, so it's a very young person. Not necessarily the one drinking the beer. It seems that the kist had been rubbed at some stage because the culprit had dug down straight through the skeleton and the floor of the kist, which would explain the missing torso bones. I see. Yeah. Yep. Now, in the second kist, there were no skeletal remains, but if you consider how much disturbance there was to the first one, there may once have been human remains. We know from other excavations, even at Newgrange, that often things were taken out yeah. at a very early period and then lost because there's no records of where they went. People just went in and took it. So unfortunately, a lot of that early period of history has been lost to us now. Now, the cairn on site measured around 19.3 meters by 16 meters. So it is quite a sizable yeah, one. Yeah, which means you would have been able to see it as you came up the River Liffey, same way as the Boyne Valley Passage tombs are placed on a bend in the River Boyne. They're very visible. Mm-hmm. Now, Kildare is quite flat for those of us who live there. You can see quite far. And so a cairn like that would have been quite visible to the surrounding areas. And we know that passage tombs and cairns, etc., like that, were used as markers of territory. That was basically the point of the Boyne Valley. Mm-hmm. But they were also used to show status. The bigger, the better. Yeah. And of course, it needs you need a lot of manpower to build something like that. You don't just do it on your own. But you also have to take into account that yes, this cairn is quite sizable, but Newgrange measures around eighty meters in diameter. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, big difference anyway. <laughs> Now, inside the cairn, a large fragment of a human skull, a jaw fragment, and some long bones were found. And they are actually representing a secondary burial, meaning this was outside the kist themselves and possibly much later. Now, we do often see the reuse of prehistoric burial sites in the medieval and sometimes even early modern period. Now, one of the best examples that we have is the Mount of the Hostages at Terra, where we can see that it was originally used as a burial ground in the Mesolithic period, but it is actually reused again as a burial ground in a Bronze Age. So that's up to a thousand years after it was an original burial mound. And it was actually used quite extensively a thousand years later as well. So this kind of shows a continuous awareness of the site itself and what it meant. So of course, this is something that people living in the Kuldrina, Lucan and Leakesdebate area, they would have known. Now, on site as well, they found large upright stones. They were found on the western side of the Kern. So they have, might actually have formed some kind of passage tomb or a small chamber. And near the base of the tomb, sealed by a layer of charcoal, they found more human bone, which was laying on several flat stones. So they're in situ burials. Now, in Newgrange in the Boyden Valley, a large basin was placed inside the tomb before the tomb itself was finished, which had also been suggested to have contained some kind of human remains. Now, we're not saying that these are the same people. We're just saying that there is a potential for a tradition, which Mm. is still up for debate. And I think what was really interesting there was the continued use of the site. And we'll be talking a bit about that just after the break. You are listening to Dublin South FM on 93.9. So welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. I'm still here, Laura, and so is Cam. Still. And just before the break, we were about to talk about the continued use of these sites that you were talking about from archaeological excavations. And I was saying it was quite 
interest and that they're continuously used and the importance of those sites, some of which, of course, are very much lost to us now. And you were saying that there are some comparisons drawn there with Newgrange and the Boyne Valley, in this case the Liffey. A great feature in Lucan would be Graffine Valley Park, in which partly flows the Graffine River, a tributary of the Liffey. The park itself is just over 200 acres, formed from a series of public open spaces with their own identifiable character. The oldest section being the town park in the middle of Lucan Village, but the park also includes a stake in the claim for oldest standing bridge in Ireland, of which there are a few contenders nationwide. Oh, indeed. But to delve into one particular bridge, taking us into the late 12th, early 13th century and into the park itself, is King John's Bridge. The remains of which span the River Graffine parallel to the present-day Esker Bridge at Lynch's Lane. The South Dublin Library's local studies did great work on the bridges of Lucan and note that the bridge is one of the only two King John bridges that survive in Ireland. One in Lucan and interestingly one spanning the River Boyne. Mm -hmm. It is known locally as Babes Bridge there. Yeah. And this is based off Peter O'Keefe's study of stone bridges in Ireland. Originally a three-arch bridge, only one can be seen now and it was constructed between 1199 and 1216. O'Keefe describes the bridge as being of excellent quality for the period and probably built by a master mason attached to the manor who had plenty of experience in building door and window arches. And he notes that the ring stones were built of local limestone. As mentioned, nearby is Esker Bridge, getting its name from Esker, which was part of the demesne in the Liffey Valley and ruled as a royal manor under King John. Of course, Liffey Valley more associated now with the shopping centre. Yep. But that's in Clondalkin. <laughs> yeah. Not a uh, bridge building would have formed an important part of the consolidation of the Norman conquest, giving access to the interior of the country. It's really important. Of course, before that, most of the river crossings would have been at Fords. Yeah. Lucan Bridge then, that spans the Liffey, is of ashlar masonry with iron balustrades. These balustrades were constructed by Phoenix Ironworks in 1814, which is the only clue to the date of the bridge. A Lucan Bridge has a span of 110 feet and is the longest masonry arch bridge in the country. So that one definitely holds a record. Oh, definitely. Now, speaking of Anglo-Norman Lucan... Uh, Francis Eldrington Ball, who we mentioned a lot, he's been mentioned a lot on the show before. His A History of the County of Dublin notes that the Anglo Normans arrived in 1159 and settled in what is now Lucan Demean. King Henry II granted lands near Lucan Village, now Lucan Demean, to Allard Fitzwilliam. The lands changed hands many times over the subsequent centuries, being owned in succession by Veris de Pesh. Robert de Nottingham in the early 1300s, Sir Thomas Rokeby by the late 1300s, and then the Fitzgeralds of Kildare. Speaking of Kildare. Yep, they're renewed royalty, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the Fitzgeralds of Kildare actually came to Ireland in 1169. They're not native Irish. They're what we call the Old English group. And they were granted the earldom of Kildare in 1316. And we actually see that the 8th and the ninth earls serve as Lord's Deputy of Ireland. So they're some of the most powerful people in all of Ireland in the late 15th and early 16th century. Now, originally they had the main seat in Maynooth Castle. 
But after the revolt of Silk and Thomas, the 10th Earl, the castle was bombarded in March of 1535 and the family was left in disgrace and most of the male senior members were executed by 1537. Mm. Now by 1569 however most of the honours of the original family of the Fitzgeralds had been restored to the 11th Earl who had actually sought exile on the continent. Now there does seem to be a bit of bad luck following the family following that as three Earls die without a male heir and two actually died during infancy, so it's not the best period of time for them. But after the destruction of Maynooth Castle, they have to find somewhere else to live, so they seek out Kilkee Castle. But also by the 18th century, they have built Cartner House, which is still in Maynooth, part of a big golf course, and that's their country residence. And in Dublin, they also built Kildare House. But when James Fitzgerald, the 20th Earl, is granted first the title of Marquess of Kildare, and then the Duke of Leinster in 1766, it becomes known as Leinster House, which most Irish people will be familiar with as the seat of the Oireachtas. Yeah, right next door to the National Museum of Ireland, actually. Indeed. Now, Griffin Park that we mentioned earlier, there is another section to it known as VC Park that can be entered at Adamstown or Newcastle Road, winding its way around the VC housing estate and ending at the Lucan Bypass. And as we follow the park, we move into the 16th century as the name VC and also the name Sarsfield start to become more abundant in the area. And this is because of those lands or estates of Lucan. So, Cam, you were talking a bit on the Fitzgeralds. Yeah. And of course, there would have been some kind of residency built to house those who owned the lands on site. Of course. So Mary Jackson, who we mentioned earlier, referred mm-hmm. to it as the big house, a manor house with a variety of occupants. After the Fitzgeralds, you later have the Sarsfield family. Of them, one William Sarsfield lived in Lucan Castle with two of his sisters, his cousin and heir, Patrick Sarsfield of Treaty of Limerick fame, his wife and family. And according to F.E. Ball, they employed a number of local people from the 120 villagers. In 1649, the Sarsfields had to give up their property to Theophilus Jones, an officer in Cromwell's forces. After this, enter the Vesey family. They came into possession of Lucan Castle as a consequence of the 1696 marriage to the Right Honourable Agmondisham Vesey, a son of the Archbishop of Tume and his marriage to Charlotte Sarsfield. Now, we mentioned the Battle of Rathmines and the prequel to Cromwell's arrival last episode, Cam. Yep. But we also mentioned the Viking influence on League Slip earlier. And there was a return of the Danes in the 17th century. There was, but definitely not in the same way. Now, we know that King Christian V of Denmark lent 7,000 Danish troops to King William III of England during the Williamite Wars in Ireland between 1689 and 1691. Now, this is where the Catholic supporters of James II, the Jacobites, fought against the Protestant King William. Now, William's army in Ireland was a total of about 35,000 men. And at the Battle of the Boyne, Danes made up approximately 15% of that army. They also took part in the Siege of Limerick and the Battle of Ockren. And the troops were on loan because the Danish army was way too big at the time for the king to actually sustain them and make sure that they got the proper training. So he lent them out. And while they were on loan, they got payment and they got training. Mm. Now, in 1692, however, the entire Williamite army was moved to Flanders. Now, whether some Danes stayed behind, we don't really know. 
if they had, it would have been as deserters of the army, so they might not have been too public about it. Fairly like secret yeah. <laughs> hiding Danes in Ireland. I love it. We're usually not that way. <laughs> History of being mercenaries, I love it. <laughs> well, what can you do? But for Luke and Castle in the 17th century, that marriage between mm. Sarsfield and VC would have a lasting effect on the area. Jackson mentioned that during their brief marriage, um, Charlotte actually died within the first three years. So, and for many years later, Agmondisham pursued Charlotte's entitlement to the Lucan lands, oh. a task that required ultimately an act of parliament in the British House of Commons in 1712, allowing him to have them. Now, they had two daughters, Charlotte and Agmondisham, one of which was Anne Vesey. She married into the Bingham family, and it is through this line, if you go follow down 200 years, you hit the seventh Earl of Lucan, or Lord Lucan, as he was also known, Richard John Bingham. Now, they're not in Lucan, the Dublin estate, that is. They're actually based out in Mayo. I don't know if you know him, Cam, but he was known for being a bit of a gambler with expensive taste. He married Veronica Duncan and their marriage collapsed in the late 1972. Custody battles went sour and in 1974, the nanny, Sandra Rivet, was found dead in the basement of the family home. This is straight out of a murder podcast. Yeah, and the Duncan... And Duncan, the ex-wife, said it was Lord Lucan that did it and that he had attacked her too. He then completely disappeared and was presumed dead in the 90s with a death certificate drafted for him in 2016. But the theories range from Buddhist monastery to going into hiding in Kenya. Who knows? (laughs) In any case, his ancestor was like Mondesham VC. After Charlotte Sarsfield passed away, in the meantime, he had moved on and Agmondisham and his second wife, Jane Pottinger, had eight kids, one of which was their son, Agmondisham. I have Junior written down in my notes just so I know which one I'm talking about. Good plan. It is that second marriage that allows this family to hold on to the Lucan estate in Dublin. And it was him, Agmondisham Jr., who demolished the old castle to make way for the fine Palladian structure, Lucan House. VC, although not an architect, designed the house in conjunction with William Chambers and Michael Stapleton was responsible for the plasterwork. The estate passed through the Sarsfield, VC and Colthurst families through marriage. The descent of the house was through the female line as no member of the family produced an heir. Hmm. In 1925, the entire contents of the house were sold at auction and by 1954, it was then purchased by the Italian government for use as the residence of the Italian ambassador to Ireland. At the time they purchased the house, though, it was an empty shell, pretty much. Hmm. It is private, but you can enter the odd time to admire the architecture. And I found an Irish Times article written in 2016 talking about the ambassador serving for a roche to visitors. Now, we worked with a lady who went yes. to... Now, she wouldn't confirm nor deny the no. Frere Rocher story. She said that the rumour is true, but she can't say for certain that it is true. So, I still don't know. But there's a new ambassador. So, I don't know if since February 2019. So, maybe he gives Frere Rochers now? I think they should all just give Frere Rocher really all want, the time. I just really want Frere yeah. Rocher. What is it with this podcast? It's all sugar. It's all sugar. <laughs> it was brunches in Raffarnham. Now it's Frere Rochers and this. And, but... VC, Sarsfield, these names pop up a lot in Lucan. The local GAA club is named the Lucan Sarsfields. You've got the VC Arms, which is a Mm. pub. We also mentioned VC Park earlier. We mentioned bridges as well. And South Dublin Libraries revealed that the VC Bridge at Lucan was constructed 
between around 1773. It is substantially in its original condition and in an act dated 1771 to 1772, VC was given permission to construct a new line of road which involved building a new bridge over the Graffine River. There are a few questions over who coined the couplet, but one some may have heard. Agmondisham VC, out of great bounty, built the bridge at the expense of the county. Yep, it's great. Heard that it? one. <laughs> we also mentioned runes that could be seen on walks through Lucan, and they include the runes of Esker Church, which we will talk about just after the break. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. So, welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. Uh, but myself and Camilla are still here. We are indeed. And just before the break, we were talking about the runes that can still be seen, Lucan, mm-hmm. and amongst them include Esker Church. Yeah, well, the name of the church is actually St. Finian's. Now, the Esker is because it's located on what is known as the Escarriera, which is a glacial feature, so quite old. Now, personally, I like a good ruin, and Me this too. one is well worth a visit, as you know. <laughs> Now, this has actually been adopted as a monument by the Society of Old Lucan under the Adopt a Monument scheme. Now, this helps protect the site itself, so no one can destroy it, no one can do anything with it. Now, they actually did geophysical survey on site last year, and they found that there's possible remains of an even older church underneath. So we can only... Imagine what else we can find in Lucan. Oh, exciting stuff, though. I know. To be continued. To to be, yeah, to watch the space. (laughs) But also on D.A. Chart's walk through Lucan and his runes, he may have also passed a hotel, which was constructed between 1890 and 1891. It was actually Agmondisham V.C.'s son, Agmondisham, who helped discover a spa in the mid-1750s, which was very fashionable for the Georgian elite. James Joyce, Big houses and spas seem to pop up a lot in this show, Cam. They're good themes. Yeah, Lucan is no different. The site Arcaseek lists the Lucan Spa on the site of a hotel finished by 1891 for the Lucan Hydropathic and Spa Hotel Co Limited. And the spa associated with it appears to have been discovered in 1758. A humble sulfur spring beside the Liffey. There is a great website called DublinSouthHistory.ie and they look at villages in South Dublin. One of their areas of focus is Lucan. It mentions a fascinating account by John Rutty in his book An Essay Towards a Natural History of the County of Dublin in 1772 which refers to the physical and medicinal qualities of the Lucan water. It may be smelt the distance of many yards especially in frosty weather or in rainy weather. It is limpid and in the well has a bluish cast and throws up a white bluish foam to the surface, having the flavour of a boiled egg and when strongest of a semi-putrid egg, the spa became famous, attracting invalids to take to the waters. Rutty's book states that the waters were effective in the treatment of mild leprosy, impetigo, herpes, eruptions on the skin and tuberculosis of the lymphatic system, among many more. So again, you have the healing qualities of Lucan. They actually built a ballroom by 1795 to accommodate people who were coming here. And the spa itself remained popular until the 1900s. It was later remodelled though by the 1930s. And in 1977, a serious fire destroyed much of the hotel, which led to serious reconstruction and the addition of a new wing and bedrooms. But of course... The tram system as well would have provided an opportunity yeah. to get out to this area and actually use the spa in the first place. But as we've mentioned in other episodes, there was a hell of a lot of competition. Oh, yeah. 
Black Rock and Dundrum episode mm-hmm. talk about the spas in that area too. Now, the population of Lucan actually tripled between 1976 and 1986. And a lot of this is overseen by the likes of Patricia Donoghue and Dermot Bolger. They do great work on the county of Lucan. In 1991, Griffin Valley Park, of course, would acquire VC Park as well. Adamstown becomes a strategic development zone and that's why you have a lot of housing now in Lucan. And you also have that £2 million bypass which yeah. separate went right through Lucan so separating into what we call old and new Lucan as well and of course speaking of Griffin Valley Park that actually had the first skateboarding park opened in Ireland really and it was really really popular as well but speaking of Griffin Park that's where we had King John's Bridge yeah and there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work on the history of Lucan and there was actually an article written in October of 2019 in the local community newspaper, The Echo. Now, it reported potential reconstruction work on the bridge, and Brendan Graham reported that two large sycamore roots are preventing conservation work being done on the bridge. At a meeting in October of the Lucan Palmerstown Fundhill Area Committee of South Dublin Council, Councillor Alan Hayes asked the council for a presentation with the timeline for the actual restoration of King John's Bridge and to make available any findings from the surveys of the bridge, end quote. Now, in their reply, the council told Councillor Hayes that a full structural assessment of the bridge was completed during 2018 and a condition assessment identified that there were two large sycamore roots, indeed, embedded in the bridge structure. Mm-hmm. Councillor Hayes said that he will continue to link with the Society of Old Dublin and South Dublin County Council to have all the works programmed by around mid-2020. The community has waited a very long time. If waiting a little longer means the job is done well and our heritage preserved, that's worth it. End quote, he added himself. Now, the council said their consultant conservation engineer, in agreement with the council's architectural conservation officer, recommended further advice be sought from a specialist botanist. Now, the council also added that due to the large sycamore roots themselves and the impact they are having on the bridge structure, remedial repair and conservation works have not been achievable to date. The council's consultant conservation engineer and their architectural conservation officer are due to carry out a further assessment and then they'll decide on how best to progress this project and agree on an appropriate schedule of works, which will depend on the rate of the root decay, really. And the council has set a date around early to mid-2020 when conservation works on a bridge will be carried out, but we are not exactly sure how that is progressing at the moment, of course. Again, watch the space. Very yeah. exciting archaeological things happening yeah. in, in, in Lucan. It will be great to see that bridge preserved oh, yeah. as we both love a good rune. We do. You mentioned there the Society for Old Lucan and mm. we mentioned the split between Old and New Lucan, that, that bypass that went yep. right through it. They do amazing work with the Society for Oligan. They really uh, do. Conserve, research and promote Lucan's local history, mm. heritage, archaeology and folklore. And their Facebook and Twitter pages do just that. I hope to catch their next walking tour when we can, but they can be found at Sock for Old Lucan. So SOC for the number Old Lucan. I hope that they will agree with us leaning towards the marshmallow yeah. meaning of Laucon rather than the elm leading. So hopefully they agree with us. But I also hope that they continue to do this excellent work. Local historical societies are just so important. They really, really are. Like the protection and conservation of Irish heritage is very much a community project. 
Like, even though you have these large government bodies, such as the National Monument Services and the Heritage Council, to name a few, it's really the work of the people on the ground within the communities that make preserving Irish heritage possible at all. Now, this is mainly because the sites across Ireland were and still are identity markers. They were created by the people who lived there and were continuously used by generations after. It is such a part of social and cultural history. It's not just about Ireland, but the small communities that make up Ireland. And this is quite obvious in the stories that, you know, you heard as children, the legends of the area, and the physical evidence that you still have there, although some of it has been changed over the years. So the work of these local groups, these local historical groups, is very important in the continued effort to protect the heritage of Ireland. And although some sites have been distorted over time because of confusing place names, as we've seen, or additional construction on sites, or even the total removal of a site, Mm. the fact that these places have survived in the cultural memory of the community itself, that's just evidence of the importance of the heritage sites as the marker of, of identity in an area and how it has helped build the Irish identity we know today even going through periods of romanticism and then new scholarship, it's so important. That was beautifully put. But no, you you absolutely hit the nail yeah. on the head and I really can't think of a better note to wrap this episode of Lucan up on. There is a lot of Lucan that may be lost mm. to us now, as we mentioned earlier and as you just referred to there too. And the likes of the historical societies bring it back. So go on a walking tour. Stay, yes. in, stay in Ireland <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Go local. Just before we do, and what came across, I suppose, a lot about Lucan was mm. the healing properties of Lucan as well, yep. becoming a destination for that. Rather, like if it was just if it was the spa, of course, that was drawing people in, or if you have these brilliant folklores that have that have been written down and kept yeah. now from, and that the Duke studies that website that has the schools collection on it, and it is absolutely it's so good. fantastic. They have so many good stories on there. But you could argue the root of that comes into the name itself, Flaucon and, and Marshmallow yeah. itself. And as you were saying, healing plants have such, as you were saying, cultural memory mm. and such an importance in an area as well. So it's important that we don't necessarily lose that. Yeah. Of course, making sure you take in those rooms as well. We only had time really to mention Esker Church, or sorry, St. Finian's Church. Mm. And we only had time to mention the bridge briefly, but the bridge is hopefully on, on its way back. Hopefully, looks like it anyway. But I think that even, especially with the whole staying local this time, take a walk around your local community. You're bound to find a ruin somewhere. Yeah, that's you it. You really are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially in Ireland. And you, or, or you'll probably look at something like where a Tesco is now and that yeah. could have been a ruin. And I think that's, 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 that's the great thing about local historical societies that they're, they're revealing that, those little hidden treasures yeah. in something that you look past every single day. And so I think the main theme that's kind of come out of Lucan as a whole is cultural memory, community memory, yeah. local history and how important that is to preserve that. Yeah. And again... That leads us on then to the very end, which is the importance of heritage yeah. and identity again as well. But as always, you were an absolute pleasure. I love seeing and talking to you. You were great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for, for having coming me. On. It was an absolute pleasure. You'll have to come back. Oh, I will. I will. I'll come back else. and yap away. I don't mind. <laughs> Halloween or something. Get oh, you yes. <laughs> I, have, I have a plan. Don't worry. 
<laughs> I can only imagine, God help us. Hey. But <laughs> the reading list is available and you can access that uh, via email from me at dublinhistoricsouth@outlook.com. That gives a reading list of all of the information that we mentioned or cited and further suggested reading for you too. Also, thank you so much for everyone who's replied on social media. Some of the messages and likes, they're very much appreciated and I want to thank you all for them and taking the time to write them. Twitter is at Dublin Historic, Instagram at Elfitz History, and Facebook is at Dublin's Historic Site. All the handles are different. Yeah. Well aware. <laughs> the podcast will be uploaded every Friday, but of course, thank you so much to Buzzsprout and more particularly, of course, to Dublin South FM for hosting this radio show. Thank you, Camilla, and until next month, bye. Bye.